You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the group think, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review. It is Tuesday afternoon, January 22nd of this busy week. Glad to be back. So much to talk about because we had a guest to start off the week. You know, I always have a lot from the weekend and things happen. Um, and then I forget to give them over, forget to write about them. And so many things have piled up. I don't know where to start. I mean, when you have the 46th anniversary of Roe v. Wade, with the courts going nuts, big day at the Supreme Court with a lot of orders and cases taken up, cases not taken up, which is a bigger point to discuss, as well as the latest on immigration, the border crisis, the government shutdown, and this new ridiculous bill that the White House, for whatever reason, is pushing that the Senate introduced, distracting from the messaging we really need. I don't even know how we're going to get to everything. And then there really is some news on military foreign policy. lot to do, big week. But I am glad that we've had some tremendous guests on the show recently. I know a lot of you have asked for more guests. Um, and I'd love to do that. It's just hard to do that and also get out enough um, just what we need to do solo uh, to keep you guys updated on the important things that other people are not focusing on or the important... Th- angles that other people are missing. Um, Anyway, just one thing that's crazy. I'm feeling a little bit weird. Don't worry too much about me, but uh, (laughs) talk about the weirdness of having kids. So last night I was, I was talking on the phone and you know, when you're on the phone, you're a little bit distracted and I was really thirsty and I could have sworn I left a cup, regular plastic cup of cranberry ginger ale on the table. You know, it's, it's very, Tasty, refreshing, whatever. You know, it's kind of pink looking, pink, pinkish red. Not too many things like that. And I saw something that looked pinkish red on the table in a cup. And I figured that was my ginger ale cup. And I took a swig. And it was like, it was the most evil thing I've ever tasted. Uh, You know, so at first I thought that, you know, my my four-year-old dumped salt in it. He does that sometimes. But then my wife was like, did you just drink Ezra's science experiment? And then like my heart sunk. Um, and it turned out it was hydrogen peroxide with food coloring in it. So, you know, she called the poison patrol right away. Uh, you know, it wasn't the 35% concentration that's like a killer, but it wasn't the 3% standard either. It was 12.5%. But it was one, I mean, it was one swig of it, probably an ounce um, but you know, it burned a little bit and then I just felt really nauseous last night. I went to sleep earlier, felt better this morning, just still feel a little queasy from it. But, you know, they told me that, you know, if nothing got worse. I shouldn't, you know, no reason to go to the emergency room. It just really demonstrated to me how fragile life is. It's just unbelievable. You know, you could be a healthy young male. And you could think, you know, you have control over your life and whatever you do. And 
you know, you could drink poison in a second, not even realize it under the most insane circumstances. And, you know, a little bit more of that stuff would have been pretty, pretty bad for me. So glad I'm still with you today. (laughs) Anyway, to the courts, obviously much of the fanfare on Roe v. Wade was on Friday because that's the annual March for Life. But the actual anniversary of Roe v. Wade is today. Okay, the 22nd of January, 46 years ago, 1973, was the Roe v. Wade decision. And as I note in my article today, The Price of Judicial Supremacy, 60 Million Lives, almost everyone who's involved in the pro-life movement misses the boat on this issue. They'll all talk about how everyone loves babies. I get it. They'll talk about babies, talk about the importance of life, all these inspirational speeches, all of these fundraising emails from these phony pro-life political organizations. And nothing ever comes of it. This is a 46-year indictment of this phony movement that has not only failed to deal with the 800-pound gorilla in the room when it comes to life and every other issue, but has actually further legitimized its vices, and that is judicial supremacy. The real problem was that you know this was a legacy, as I noted, a legacy of Dred Scott, that the Supreme Court could just, with the flick of the wrist, adjudicate a case and then create a political rule binding on the entire country based on that to say that human beings are property, substantive due process rights to slavery. That's what Dred Scott was. Now, back then, there weren't too many cases where the courts really ruled on a fundamental political issue. But this this is the time they did. It was one of the few. And Stephen Douglas, the senator from Illinois was trying to say it's the law of the land. A lot of you remember last year, I did an entire show reenacting the Lincoln-Douglas debate. So in today's article, I just quote some of the debates. And it's really unbelievable thinking that this took place over 100 years before Roe v. Wade. And still, our body politic is siding with Douglas over Lincoln. The notion that a court could come in and there's a fundamental question, is when does human life begin? That is a fundamental cultural philosophical question that can only be decided by the political branches of government, really should be decided at a state level. And there's nothing you can glean from a court. A court can't further that debate more by taking a random plaintiff and giving a ruling to them. They have no right to do that. But we decided that no, when a court says something, that is it. No other state, no other branch of the federal government could ever do anything to upend that. And that cost 60 million lives. This notion that we have one branch of government, not three, cost us 60 million lives. Anything anyone tells you on pro-life is bullcrap if they don't address this issue. Because the notion, as we're going to explain today, when you see 
the cautious nature of not just John Roberts, but really all of them in many respects. The cautious nature of conservative judges relative to their liberal counterparts. If you think we're anywhere close to five votes to reverse Roe v. Wade, you just ain't paying attention. That has been the racket for 46 years. Rather than putting our political capital into stripping the courts, <coughs> sorry, the courts of jurisdiction, rather than delegitimizing the ruling and pushing back with the other branches of government saying, no, we are going to, you know, not enforce the law against any state that wants to do something different. Instead, we kicked it all to the courts, albeit we said, all right, we're elect our people. They're going to overturn Roe v. Wade as if it's some sort of a statute that needs repealing. We legitimized it as a statute when it's not. That's the failure of the pro-life movement and really the entire conservative movement on every issue. And since then, the courts have just taken it a step further that you can't even put regulations for the health standards on abortion clinics. You can't limit the location of border of, of abortion clinics near schools. You can't even limit the most gruesome uh, procedures, the dilatory procedure. The I mean the dilation procedure, just kind of sucking it out and you know, chopping up the the baby. Nothing. You can't put any limits on it. And then we have the ruling that even illegal aliens are entitled to break into our country and demand to be driven by HHS to an abortion clinic. Now we have abortion chain migration. People who come here just to have abortions. So it's not just 60 million in America, but now we're be, we become a, we've become a magnet for countries that don't allow elective abortions for people to come here just for that. But as I've noted, 60, lives, 60 million lives is very important. But it's not just about abortion. It's every single issue that matters to our republic. It's the stolen sovereignty. That we are denuded of our ability to self-govern and determine as a society in the proper avenues of what's federal, what's state, through our state legislatures, through Congress. The outcome of the most important societal questions. That we have this social transformation without representation. That a court could come in and say, well, this is a life. Well, you know what? You know what's interesting? You know what's interesting? Over 100 years prior to Roe v. Wade, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, in 1858, summer of 1858, Lincoln warned about this assumption, and he said, look, if you're going to tell, once you tell me that a court has veto power, it doesn't just adjudicate a judicial rule rule for the judicial branch of government for a particular case and how they want to treat that case, but it's binding, universally binding and self-executing on everyone in the country and the other branches of government, and they veto the other branches, they dictate to the other branches. His problem was that the same way you tell me that, that they could do it on this decision, it's a slippery slope into the abyss of hell because there's no limit to what they can't do. They could dictate anything then. That was his point when he mocked Douglas 
of treating every utterance, every flatulence of a judge as thus says the Lord. That's what he kept mocking him throughout the debate. He noted that if Dred Scott, quote, commits him, meaning Douglas, to the next decision whenever it comes as being as obligatory as this one, since he does not investigate it and won't inquire whether the opinion is right or wrong. So he takes the next one without inquiring whether it is right or wrong. He teaches men this doctrine and in so doing prepares the public mind to take the next decision when it comes without any inquiry. I mean, I cannot think of a more fortuitous ominous foreshadowing line from Lincoln that applies literally to this moment, this hour that we sit right now, where what's happened is that we've been so acculturated, not just by the liberal movement, but by the conservative movement of, oh, the courts are so important, but but let's get our guys on there. That there's literally nothing a judge can't do. And now the, the, it's even worse than that because Lincoln could never have envisioned this. He was talking about the Supreme Court. Now it's any random forum shopped district judge. If the ACLU could take any issue to a district judge, even if other district judge would, would rule 180 degrees opposite, but until and unless we get the Supreme Court's butt, uh, the rear ends off the bench to actually act on it, we are told that is the binding law of the land and literally could alter life and death situations for this country based on that and that there's not a darn thing we can do other than hope the supreme court takes it up we don't inquire we don't question this doctrine we just take each one and the more it happens the more it becomes normal and the and and, and the less we even react to it the less we react to it and with that preface i think it's a beautiful not beautiful in terms of the outcome but a very uh, illustrative way of marking this grim 46th anniversary of Roe because a lot there was a lot of action, mainly inaction, at the Supreme Court today. Today was one of those days where we wait with bated breath. Okay, which cases are the Supreme Court going to take up? Okay, which cases are they going to decide? Orders and decisions. Okay, okay, which ones? And basically... So let's start off with the good news, the good news. So you'll see the headlines, Supreme Court allows Trump's ban on transgenderism in the military to stand. So right away, even that headline is so offensive. (laughs) The Supreme Court allows. The Supreme Court allows the commander-in-chief to determine the eligibility standards of his, the military controls as being in concert with the standards that existed since George Washington until the final year of Obama's presidency when he unilaterally brought in transgenderism and Trump merely overturned it. Three or four district judges said he can't do it. And we, you know, we, we just became desensitized. Like, that was normal. Luckily, one of the circuit court levels, surprisingly, D.C. Circuit, said, no, it's not not true. No, you that's, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sorry, they didn't rule on the merits, but took off the nationwide injunction. And it was actually the other side that was bringing it to the Supreme Court to reinstate the injunction. Supreme Court said, no, the injunction doesn't stand. So even in the good news, I want to show you bad news. I know, I know I'm the Grim Reaper, but 
there, listen to me, there's an important lesson here. We now have to celebrate that we got permission from the Supreme Court to at least continue not doing balls cutting in our military. I mean, forget about the social values behind that. Just think about the the insanity on combat readiness, the danger of the suicide rates of these people. You know, we don't allow people who who mass, engage in masochism and cut off their arms. Cutting off your balls is less severe. By their own admission, all these transgender groups, they always sit, talk about the crisis of suicide. You can't have that in the military. So we're allowed to go through with it. But the lower courts are still able to adjudicate this. Meaning the point is, this is what I keep saying. Many times the Supreme Court doesn't even give us any relief. Even when they do it, they don't rip out the cancer. They allow it to stand, but give a little chemotherapy for now. The problem is, once you legitimize this stuff in the, in, in the court system, that it's normal, meaning implicitly, what's the Supreme Court saying? Look, I wouldn't do a nationwide injunction pending this, but you could continue adjudicating um, at the district court level. They, in other words, they, they granted the government's um, stay on the nationwide injunction, but they denied their motion to dismiss the case. Here's the problem. If you had equivalent insanity coming emanating from conservative lower court judges, let's say they say, Every conservative in America has a right to knock on a door of a liberal and demand that they give them $500 to purchase a gun. Because guns are so important to Second Amendment that every liberal has to give me $500. Do you think, do you think that the Supreme Court, that the liberal justices on the Supreme Court would be like, you know, let's, let's, let's engage in some beard stroking here. Well, uh, you know, let's let's uh, no nationwide injunction. Uh, you know, pending the outcome of the case. What pending? What outcome? They would say this thing is not justiciable. This is evil. It must stop immediately. They would have written a whole rebuke of the lower court judges, called them out by name. The legal profession would have run them out of town. They would have dug up hit pieces on the names of these judges. Of course, The capacity of a good judge to do good is nowhere near the capacity of a bad judge to do bad. This is the problem. You have the passivity of the conservative judges is no match for the truculence of the liberal judges, both in the lower courts and on the Supreme Court. There is, I'm finding that there is nothing that is too absurd, even for the conservative judges on the Supreme Court. They don't rip it out. I'm not saying like, what the heck? Why are we doing this? Like, well, let's calm down. Let's let's see. Let's see. Let's wait. What are you talking about? Total nuts. So to me, just the sheer fact that this is allowed to be adjudicated. Keep in mind, we've had this very often in the court system the last couple of years, where even when we've gotten relief on the nationwide injunction, the lower courts will then come back, rule on the merits, and then, you know, because because it's a prelim, it's a prelim, uh, preliminary injunction. But so the Supreme Court will take off the preliminary injunction, pending the outcome of the merits. But it still doesn't stop the lower courts from ruling bad on the merits. And then we have to wait till that round goes 
through the circuit courts and then we'll lose there in most circuits and then go to the Supreme Court. I mean, forget about judicial supremacy. We're not even, as an as a body politic, rejecting the notion of nationwide injunctions of a district judge. I mean, I thought we had momentum to stopping that. No, nothing. That is illegal. Daniel, so what do we do? Get up there and give a speech, have the attorney general give a speech, have members of Congress speak and just say, this is illegitimate. As other branches of government, we're not going to accept this. We have no other choice. We don't have a country left. This is the problem. Even when they do take up cases or give us relief on some level at the Supreme Court level, it's not swift enough and categorical enough and numerous and often enough to stop the cancer. It's like fighting stage five cancer with traditional methods. It's just you can't counteract the spores of insanity pumping out from the lower courts quick enough. But then there's the big enchilada. The Supreme Court has still declined to act on DACA. Now, you might say, well, Daniel, we don't want the courts acting on DACA. I know, but the problem is the lower courts already acted the other way. We are now a year and a half into the fact, a year and a half into the notion that a district judge and circuit judges could say that it is illegal to follow immigration law, that a president could not only come in and take a law that says that illegal aliens who break into our country have to be deported and give them social security cards and work permits and refundable tax credits, but that the next president must obey that president, his edict and not statute. It was insanity. That was the, that was the, Focal point, that was the decision point. That To me, that was the watershed event where Trump had to get up there and say, look, this is not just an opinion I don't like. Here is a case where it's mutually exclusive. The statute is telling me I must deport them. The court is telling me I must give them benefits. I cannot fulfill both. So therefore, I must fulfill my oath to the Constitution. The Constitution gives Congress the power to grant status to aliens. And they have granted negative status to them. I must follow statute. Instead, we'll, oh, we'll, we'll appeal it. We begged the Supreme Court to do an expedited appeal, especially because one of the judges in this case had to be slapped down nine to nothing by the Supreme Court on an ancillary part of that case, demanding that Trump show all of his private texts and emails from advi- advice and counsel from his legal team and his political advisors. And the, the court did slap it down. So when you have this rogue judge... I mean, this is insane. This is where the Supreme Court needs to step in, I would argue, even without any cert. No, no, they said you're going to get adequate ruling in the Ninth Circuit. Well, the Ninth Circuit already ruled on it, and they haven't acted. By the way, it's worse than that. No one's going to tell you this, but let me, let me tell you something very interesting. It's worse than that. So the Supreme Court hasn't denied cert, Right, there's three levels. There's granting cert, meaning granting the appeal, affirmatively denying it. You you write, okay, it's denied. We're not taking it up, and then just failing to act on it. Okay, so right now we're at the failing to act stage, but they have actually denied it in another case. 
In 2014, a radical district judge in Arizona forced Arizona to issue driver's licenses to the illegal aliens illegally granted DACA work permits by Obama. Arizona lost two rounds of appeals in the Ninth Circuit. And they've been forced to wait three years, three years of irreparable damage. Magnets encouraging illegal aliens to drive. And all the statuses they can get based on having a driver's license. There's nothing expeditious about that. They exhausted all its appeals. Yet last March, the Supreme Court directly denied their appeal. Denied their appeal. Think about this. Over the course of the last two years, a slew of court rulings in California, Chicago, Philadelphia, Miami, New York, all over the place, have ruled that sanctuaries could violate immigration law. States could thwart immigration law. Okay, the same courts that rule that states cannot follow immigration law and must follow Obama's fake law, and Trump has to follow Obama's fake law to federal end, but states could nullify immigration law. Think about it. Over the last two years, federal courts have give, granted standing to blue states to sue the president and demand that he issue an unlimited number of visas to foreign nationals. States, states have been granted standing to sue all this, asylum, anything. They essentially sued for the right to have more immigrants in a state, a power that everyone agrees a state manifestly does not have. That is literally why we moved from the Articles of Confederation to the, to, to the U.S. Constitution. Yet the Supreme Court had no problem maintaining the lower court rulings, granting their request at least for families with bona fide ties. Finally, after a year, Trump v. Hawaii, they ruled the right way. And then, as you know, the lower courts just came back for more 100 different ways. In this case with Arizona, they weren't asking for anything. They merely wanted to be left alone to protect its citizens. They weren't asking for anything. They wanted to be allowed to protect its citizens from the deleterious effects of people who come here illegally under federal law. Arizona was legitimately using its state powers over driver's licenses. Keep it. I want you to understand the juxtaposition here. States do not have power over visas. That's federal, of course. But driver's licenses is their thing. They maintain full control over that. Yet the courts treated Arizona like a pariah to the law at the BS of illegal aliens. And the Supreme Court turned them down. They are so political. I want you to understand the irreparable harm of allowing these lower court opinions to stand. What I mean by allowing them to stand is both the Supreme Court not overturning them and the rest of us as a movement not raising our voice and demanding that the other branches delegitimize them. Think about how this opinion on DACA has altered the political trajectory. The left, the one leverage that Trump always had over them was DACA. He's like, I'm, I'm doing away with it now. Now, you know, I'm not into this business that we need to trade amnesty in order to get what we deserve. I think if we did a better job messaging and leveraging other things, we wouldn't have to do it. But nonetheless, I think we all agree it is kind of leverage. It is leverage that if you have the right people crafting the right deals, 
there's what to talk about. All right, you want 700,000 visas? Well, here's what you got to do. Thanks to a random district district courts that if it would have been brought to Judge Hannon, any other judge, it would have went the other way. It would have went the other way. Thanks to them. This goes on forever. Trump lost his leverage. Meaning the courts are not going to act on it until Trump acts on it. Until Congress, I mean, Congress acts on it. But the problem is the courts already did act on it. I want the courts out of this. But what the lower courts got in there. Now, look, obviously, it's our fault. We we shouldn't even be begging the Supreme Court. If we're going to listen to, if, if the Supreme Court, let's say a district judge says, Trump, you have to declare martial law. And Trump's like, well, what could I do to the district court? If you want to listen to that, that's your problem. At some point, th- this is getting ridiculous. The weakness of the other branches. But if you're John Roberts and probably some of these other guys on the Supreme Court and you believe in judicial supremacy as they do, then you have an obligation to take up this case and overturn it expeditiously and categorically with the strongest language. It is unbelievable. And the amount of case law that this is germinating based on this stuff standing because you have just... It it metastasizes, it it explodes, it multiplies. Because so many new rights are created based on that. By allowing this to stand, you're saying illegals basically could sue for anything. They could do whatever they want. It is unreal what is taking place in the court system. And you know what? Last summer, I I think it was August 31st, Judge Hannon issued kind of like some sort of judgment, I'm forgetting what stage it was, where he basically said, look, DACA is clearly unconstitutional, but he declined to issue an injunction, meaning a reverse injunction, where you know, we would have had this conflict, which I, I was hoping we'd have, which would have just brought this whole issue of nationwide injunctions to head. And I don't blame him, but I'm just saying, you see the cautious nature of conservative judges. Look, with Obamacare, you have an unconstitutional statute telling people you must purchase health insurance. It's not illegals. It's Americans. It's saying, shall, you shall purchase. That's clearly unconstitutional. Supreme Court said that. They only said that if it's a tax, but now it's not a tax anymore. Judge Reed O'Connor, conservative judge that gave summary judgment saying it's unconstitutional, forget about a nationwide injunction. He didn't issue any injunction. Could you imagine the cascading effects of what would have changed in the healthcare market and the politics that it would have changed and altered our political system had he done that? But he didn't do that. All I'm trying to tell you, I'm not trying to bash these conservative judges, I'm trying to tell you if your answer is appoint better judges, you, you're not understanding that you can't fight five measures of conservative action on the court with 5 million measures of liberal action. It's a one-way street and a dead end. It's a one-directional ratchet. Picture the American Republic is as a large dump of dirt, of mud, and the courts get to pick at it all they want. Picture the liberal judges and justices at one side coming in with massive excavators 
and the conservative judge is digging with a plastic spoon. And we say, rather than saying stop the digging and end the game, we're like, well, let's keep the game flowing. Let's legitimize it. Let's raise the specter of the importance of the Supreme Court by making it the most important issue in the Senate. Albeit, let's get our guys in there. You can have a million of our guys in there digging with a, with a plastic spoon. It's not going to combat the excavator that the left comes with. That is the rule from today that is so, so important. And again, you look even at some of the better aspects of what happened today. The gun ruling. Okay? So there was the... um. What's it called? Uh, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. City of New York. They agreed to take up uh, an appeal from bad lower court opinions on New York City's ban on transporting a licensed locked and loaded handgun to a home or a shooting range outside city limits. Obviously, it violates the Commerce Clause, the free, you know, the restriction of free movement, right to travel. Obviously, Second Amendment. And everyone's very happy. And yeah, it's better than nothing. But notice notice the weasel nature of these conservative judges. And when I say these conservative, I don't know. It's clearly not Thomas because he has emphatically wanted to take up all these other cases. Clearly not Gorsuch when it comes to Second Amendment. He's very good. Um, It's hard to know who else, but clearly Roberts is part of the weasels. Whereby... Look, this is a very, in, in, in other words, let's say there's five cases we could take up that address the judicial cancer. One, one, if you would take it up and then rule properly on it, it would scoop out 100% of the tumor. Another one would scoop out 80, another one 60, another one 40, another one 20. They agree to take up the 20, but none of the others. This is very in the weeds. So I could picture the, it's, it's the most egregious, but it's on the smallest scale. It's a very narrow question. I could, yeah, I'm sure they're going to rule right on that. But the fundamental things that if you live in a blue state like me in Maryland, you cannot carry any type of weapon of any caliber, of any capacity outside your home. Assault weapons ban, mag capacity bans. All of that stuff, they have declined to take up, despite an eight-year violation of Heller, or at least the clearly the rationale behind it. See what I mean? I mean, if you had conservative judges doing this type of stuff at the lower level, Ruth Bader Ginsburg would get off her hospital bed to strangle these people to death. They would like issue an order, like a bench warrant for their, their arrest or something. Forget about taking up the case. This is the problem. They get gun shy. And, and, and again, I want gun shy judges. But that's only if you reset the baseline. But if the baseline exists that the liberal lower courts could do whatever they want. And we are told that we don't have the right to push back. And the only one who has that power is the Supreme Court. Well, if you're going to get these so-called conservative justices there, you better be aggressive on that. You have the obligation to take these harmful rulings that create immeasurable damage 
you know how many people have died? We're going to talk today a little bit about, um, I'm going to have an article out. A record 33,400 Mexicans died, 15% increase from last year. It doubled from 2014, the number of homicides in Mexico. What's 2014? The Central American migration. Do you know how many, how many Americans have died? How many Mexicans have died? How much drug trafficking? Because of single district judge rulings and nationwide injunctions preventing Trump from doing a God dog on thing to use his lawful powers to cut off all immigration, much less modify and have different nuances and regulate their entry. Think about that, how long this is able to stand. And the more it stands, the more it becomes legitimate in the system, where even if you overturn it, but the basis for adjudicating these type of cases and getting standing and coming back with 50 other angles is now totally in the queue. The policy effects from it. Other case law, sometimes not even pertaining to immigration. You know, it's any study of law, people understand that, you know, we derive certain principles from certain rulings from one issue to another. It could be, it could be an abortion case. It could be, uh, could be anything. Rules of standing in general are, are so absurd now with these cases. If you don't slap them down on that, it's very dangerous. But yet we do nothing. Yet we do nothing. You know, even, and I'm not, I'm not criticizing it. I, t- I totally, it makes sense to me. But um, where, where is this? The case of that football coach who wanted to pray during a football game, high school football coach in uh, California, jo- jo- Joseph Kennedy v. Bremerton School District, where the school district didn't allow him to. And district court, Ninth Circuit, of course, sided against First Amendment, freedom of religion, the, court, the Supreme Court denied cert. Now, Justice Alito wrote an explanation, and he was joined by Thomas Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, not Roberts, but those other three, explaining basically that clearly they don't like what's going on in the lower courts and their whole entire doctrine on this issue. They just say there's just it's, there's just too many um, facts not known about this that need further discovery before they could take it up. And, and fine. But again, I'm just trying to demonstrate how even the best of judges, even when they don't like what they're doing, they're not going to violate their, they have a certain modus operandi and, and I'm not, I respect it. It's fine. They're not, and they're not going to take it up. They're reluctant for any number of reasons. There is no such reluctance on the left. And this is, I, look, I could, I could, I could speak for 10 hours on 50 reasons why the judiciary is irremediably broken the way it's constructed once you agree to judicial supremacism and why simply appointing better judges is not going to change it. It just further legitimizes them as the end all while they continue to kill us. But I I hope that you've taken out some new information just from today, but how appropriate on the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. Now, obviously, one of the big things is once you agree to the notion 
that a court could make a human being into a slave property, that a court could say a baby is cartilage, that a court could say redefine marriage, well, a court could redefine a citizen, okay? So it's not surprising that now we've reached a point where courts could tell us that we're the criminals, law enforcement's the criminals, DHS and the Justice Department are criminals, and illegal aliens have a right to be here and a right to get anything they want. Okay? So, the reason we are where we are today in this crossroads, this logjam, really, on immigration, the reason why we have this border crisis is all because of the courts. A lot of people forget that. Which brings me back, brings me now to the latest going on in the, in the Senate. The Senate has now released text of, of uh, Trump's proposal that he issued Saturday night, his offer to the Democrats. Now, you saw my article yesterday explaining the problems with it, both both from a policy and a political end. Once the text has come out, it is a little better. It is a little better. Meaning it's still something we don't want to pass policy-wise, but the good news is it has things that are too offensive to the left that I don't think there's a way they could take this literally and pass it out of the Senate now. No Democrat would vote for it. So therefore, we don't have to worry about Pelosi making it worse and then sending it back to the Senate. And then you know Trump is just so into border wall funding, he'll take anything in exchange for that, even if it takes us backwards. As you well know, if you don't fix the judicial amnesty, nothing matters. And specifically, if you don't fix in some sort of policy statute or notion of Flores, the UAC loophole, and the asylum loophole, as well as deportations and sanctuary cities and all the interior magnets, you're not going to stem the growing tide every month that's increasing every month. Partial construct, Gradual construction of a partial border wall, 5.7 billion, which is only 230 miles, ain't going to cut it. Okay, so that was that was that that was as of yesterday. Now, before I get into some bizarre but better provisions that they put in, let me just say that I find pretty astounding a provision that is in this bill. Um, there is a provision that stops DHS or it prohibits DHS from using the $5.7 billion to construct the form of, of uh, steel slates that Trump, you know, the, the prototype that CBP has been deploying for two years. Now, there are other options, but that particular one, it actually bars it in the language. I don't get it. 
Moreover, it doubles the cap on H-2B temporary non-agricultural workers, slave labor. Okay? So it has that as well. In addition to the amnesty for the 700,000 DACA, which is the worst form of amnesty and the pain and misery that it has caused for us to treat that as a solution is unbelievable. And then obviously the 300,000 at least TPS amnesty. So it is still a problem. Now we'll say, well, Daniel, why won't seven Democrats vote for this, send it to the House and make it worse, like I said yesterday? So when I said that it doesn't make any policy changes that are good, so now, you know, that was in Trump's outline. It didn't contain any, but in the legislative language, it does contain some weird things. So what it does is it now says that basically, um, and, and I'm still trying to digest this. I haven't had the time this morning to go over it well enough, but the unaccompanied alien children from Central America can now apply cannot apply for asylum in our country. It has to be in their home country. There's a cap of 50,000 applications a year and only 15,000 approvals a year. Um so the left is going nuts. They're like you're gutting asylum and yada yada. So because of that they're not going to vote for it. Now you might say, "Hey Daniel, well isn't that good? Didn't we get rid of the UAC loophole?" No, no, no. No, no. You have to understand here. Here's the the trick. There's two groups of people and two loopholes. There's the family units, meaning adults coming with kids. They're using the loopholes of asylum mixed with florists. What that means is the following. And again, this is not law. It's antithetical to law. It's evil, but the courts created it. That means if you come here with kids, you just say, I have a credible fear of persecution. And then you have to be processed. And once you're processed, because there's a backlog, because so many are invading, it's a double invasion. They invade us, invade our system, and say, hey, well, it takes too long. You can't hold us. You can't hold kids. So the courts made up this their own law. You can't hold kids for more than 20 days. And then this past year, which was created the latest surge, was when they said not only that, once you can't hold the kid, you have to release the adult because then you'd be separating the adult and the kid. And there's a new law um, that passed um, by the media called virtue signaling, not in statute, but it says you can't separate, you know, criminals. You can separate American criminals, but not their criminals. So therefore, they have to both be released. And they're like, holy hell! So all we have to do is go to the border, say credible fear, you process us, you release us and the kids, and we get to disappear. Awesome. Hence the last eight months of just insane. You know, I plotted it on a graph. I'll have it in my. I have it in all my pieces now. It's 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 surreal what has happened, and it's all because of Judge Sabra in San Diego, Bush appointee, by the way, as well as some others. Those are the people using the bogus asylum. That is not changed under this proposal. It only you know you might say, well, you know, you have to do it outside the country. Daniel, isn't that what you said? No. It's only for you for the individual UACs, not the family units. Here's the problem. The UACs aren't using asylum. So we're fixing the loophole only for the people that don't use it. 
They don't come in and say persecution the kids. That's something else. They already have their own loophole that if you're here as a minor, we have to treat you like a refugee, send you to Office of Refugee Resettlement, and you get resettled with your illegal relatives where you should both be deported because you're not a victim of severe trafficking. But somehow this administration has never asserted that, even in litigation. I don't get it. So if you're not going to fix that, it's a joke. Now, there is an asterisk to this that there's an additional provision that does allow us to enter into agreements with Central America to pro- to process everyone, like, you know, to basically not take asylees or basically send them back, to send them back like we do to Mexicans. But that's different from prohibiting it in law. It's a step removed. You have to find that agreement. Well, what if they don't agree? It's, it's so, so what I'm saying is it's a little better and it's enough that it will thankfully make it enough of a poison pill that it won't wind up passing the Senate so the House won't um, do crazy stuff with it. But it still is stupid to get our people to go ahead and make themselves pregnant, so to speak, on amnesty, getting them to break their... I hate to use this term, but I have no other good way of expressing it, but their legislative virginity on not voting for amnesty on this stupid thing. Now, if the left is just going to reject it, I don't don't know what... I mean, what is the purpose of this? Why not just sit and hold a series of votes? Here's what they need to do. Have... Force the Democrats to hold the floor and jam them with votes, motions to proceed. First one would be paying law enforcement. So, in, you know, we still wouldn't agree to fund HUD and Commerce and all this stuff, but we would pay TSA, Border Patrol, ICE, Coast Guard, FBI, DEA, maybe federal prosecutors, maybe a couple others. Make them vote against that. Simultaneously have votes on sanctuary cities, on criminal aliens, on deporting criminals. All sorts of stuff targeting MS-13 and the cartels. Stop making it about amnesty and then these haphazard, weird things. I don't know why Stephen Miller put them in there. He might have some sort of rationale. I have yet to discover his purpose other than to tell you that they are offensive enough to the left that I think we're safe for now. I was much more worried yesterday. But that's what's going on with that. Uh, anyway... Before we sew sew things up here, I just want to tell you, this is a 1,300-page bill. So it's not just a border bill. It's part of a whole omnibus that they're funding the seven departments that haven't yet been funded for the the remainder of the fiscal year until uh, the end of FY 2019. There's a lot of garbage here. There's $12 billion in extra disaster aid when gosh they've spent it like they spent a hundred billion on disaster aid on top of everything else we have that's supposed to take care of it um there's also a lot of interesting stuff like you know i'm just tweeting this out as i'm talking so i got a little distracted no less than 15 million shall be made available for border security programs in pakistan i'm not kidding and then assistance for lebanon you know, because remember, this funds State Department programs. Citizens for Lebanon may be available only to professionalize the LAF, that's the Lebanese Armed Forces, which is AKA Hezbollah, and to strengthen border security and combat terrorism. So now we're securing Hezbollah's border. Jeez, you know, if you can't cry, you got to laugh. Man, is this uh, pathetic. 
utterly pathetic. So we'll see what happens here. I mean, so you know, we were scared of tossing an interception. I don't think that is imminent, but they're certainly throwing in completions here and wasting their time. We're not properly harnessing this discussion. At the end of the day, in addition to voting on a bill to fund all of the federal law enforcement agencies until an omnibus is passed and voting on a number of 2025 anti-criminal alien provisions embarrassing the Democrats, Trump needs to use his leverage of the military. And that is, we should be doing this even without the debate over the border wall. He needs to deploy the military more robustly, in my view, and start threatening the cartels with it. That will really change their attitude because they're scared that we'll finally turn our military on them. Beef up our military presence. I would put start constructing bases for them. See, because that he could do under DOD funding. Sure, sure is heck a lot more uh, in line with our national security than what we're doing overseas for the most part. So um, that's what we need to be doing. And then, like I said, if you read the statutes, once he deploys the military and starts constructing things for the military, it's a lot easier to then rationalize building a wall in support of a military operation. So, you know, that's ultimately what needs to happen. But look, we'll, we'll see what happens. We're going to cover this more towards the end of the week. Let me know your feedback, what you're looking for, what answers you want from some of the experts we have on the show. I'm going to try to have an Arizona sheriff on the show this week. <clears throat> Let me know different things that you feel the media is not addressing that you want us to address with our experts. Um, and as always, feel free to email me. It's hard for me to read every email, but I try to read as many as I can. dharowitz at blazemedia.com or you could tweet me at rmconservative. Until next time, God bless y'all. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.